Cooking with your kids is one of the best ways to encourage them to eat healthy and try new foods. So if you're looking for a holiday gift that isn't a toy and that you can also enjoy together when you're stuck indoors this winter, then the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. In the course, you'll get more than 30 basic cooking skills, 45 videos, including a ton of bonuses, principal supply and grocery shopping lists, and kid-friendly recipes like veggie bean burritos and spaghetti squash lasagna. The course is designed for all kids ages 2 to teen and has three different skill levels. My kids and I have taken the course, and it was so easy to follow along that my kids made an entire recipe on their own. More than 18,000 families have taken the course, and the Wall Street Journal named it the number one cooking class for kids. If you want your kids to be healthy, adventurous eaters, sign up by going to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues. And because you're a listener, you'll get a free lesson. Again, go to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues and sign up. As a busy working mom, I don't have time to run from store to store, especially around the holidays. But with Thrive Market, I don't have to. Thrive Market is an online membership-based market that makes healthy living easy and affordable, and they ship everything to your door. You'll find everything you need for the holidays, including ethical meat, sustainable seafood, clean wine, baking essentials, and snacks for the kids. It's all organic and non-GMO, and members save an average of $32 on every order. They even have curated shopping lists that make holiday prep a breeze. If you join today, you can get 25% off your first order and a free gift. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com slash food issues. And for every paid membership, they give a free membership to a low-income family. So sign up today at thrivemarket.com slash food issues. This is Food Issues. In every episode, we bring you experts to tackle the real challenges around feeding kids and offer practical insight to help organizations, communities, and parents create change. I'm your host, Julie Revelon. Gut health, the microbiome, and probiotics have been buzzwords over the last decade, But now experts are learning more about infant gut health and breastfeeding and its connection to colic, sleep, allergies, and autoimmune conditions. Once a baby is born, their intestinal tract or their gut looks very different before and after they start consuming human milk. That's Dr. Tracy Shafazada, a nutritional scientist and director of scientific communications at Evolve Biosystems. We'll talk about newborn gut deficiency, why pooping while giving birth is actually a good thing, plus how to know if your baby needs probiotics and how to find the right one. This is an information-packed, fascinating conversation with Dr. Shafazada that I know you're going to love. Well, Dr. Shafazada, thank you so much for coming on the Food Issues Podcast. I'm so excited to speak with you today. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about your story. Why did you become a nutritional scientist and why did you become interested in infant gut health particularly? And what does your work look like today? Yeah, so nutrition has always been incredibly interesting to me, but it's changed over time uh, in terms of 
when you think about nutrition, are you thinking about what the food that you're eating? Are you thinking about how your body is metabolizing that food? Or are you thinking about the ways that different types of food make you look and feel and think? And so all of those things are part of food and nutrition. But what really got me interested in infant nutrition and the infant gut health in particular uh, really started when I was doing my graduate work at UC Davis. And I was looking at uh, infant intestinal development, specifically around folate metabolism, uh, which we all know is incredibly important during uh, gestation and early development during pregnancy. Uh, And what really struck me was once a baby is born, their intestinal tract or their gut looks very different before and after they start consuming human milk. All from, from the moment they have their very first sip of human milk, their intestine changes in so many ways, both physically, but also from a molecular biology standpoint, all these different enzymes and genes start getting turned on and, and working in a different way. And that's when I knew that human milk really is magical. It is a magical biological fluid that we don't even think about making. It just happens in our bodies. And it is it is incredibly powerful in uh, guiding the development of 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 the infant and our, our, our bodies. And that was many moons ago, um, more than 15 years ago. Little did I know that at some point in the future, I would have the chance to become part of a company that's focused exactly on infant gut health and infant intestinal development and human milk and how all of that is connected through the microbes that become part of the, the infant gut microbiome. And so that's really what my my day looks like today as a nutritional scientist. I'm really not at the bench uh, in a lab anymore that um, I, I'm really more focused on translating the science that's emerging in this space of infant gut health and the infant micro- gut microbiome into things that people can understand uh, ba- at very different audiences. So how does a pediatrician think about helping moms and dads maintain and build a, a, a healthy gut microbiome in their newborn versus how does a clinician in a hospital with babies in the NICU who are premature, how do they think about the microbes that are starting to colonize that very tiny premature infant's gut dictate the trajectory that that baby will be on? Or how does just a mom or dad or caregiver, grandma, grandpa, how do they think about what's their role in helping establish a, a healthy infant gut microbiome for their newborn in their life. So, so translating the science into things that people can actually use and help improve the health of infants is really uh, what I think about on a day-to-day basis. We've talked about gut health for years, but not specifically a, a ton about infant gut health. And so are pediatricians kind of, you know, aware of this? Are they talking to patients about these, these issues? Yes. Yes, more and more. So I think you're right. I think the concept of the gut health and even the term microbiome has become much more part of our normal vocabulary now, both from uh, average uh, consumers all the way to clinicians. But what that really means and what we actually want to see in the infant gut is really still part of um, the emerging science in terms of what bacteria really are supposed to be in baby's gut versus what is typically there uh, today and really trying to understand the optimal uh, 
uh, infant gut microbiome composition is really where the, the science is, is really leading us. And I would say that what's interesting is that things that, for instance, a pediatrician is typically seeing in their practice. So moms that come in and say, my baby has so much diaper rash that really doesn't seem to be resolved with uh, normal topical ointments. What is going on? Well, now we know that's actually linked to the types of microbes or bacteria that are in baby's gut. And we can solve that by thinking about uh, modifying the gut microbes rather than thinking about what topical ointments to put on baby's skin. Or things like colic. My baby won't stop crying. They're so fussy. They seem they're in pain. We now know that colic is also related to the microbiome uh, and what bacteria are in baby's gut. And those are new connections that I think pediatricians and clinicians across the board are starting to make. Uh, and so that conversation really is happening more and more. Yeah, absolutely. I remember my, I have two daughters, they're 10 and eight. And I remember when the little one um, was just born, she was a preemie and I was breastfeeding. And I, and I guess I must've had some sort of issues with, um, you know, like she seemed fussy maybe. And I remember our, our doctor at that time was absolutely amazing and, and really on the pulse of, of everything new. And, and he, um, and he recommended that we do infant probiotics. And I thought that was you know, sound a little crazy maybe at the time, but um, I think it's great that pediatricians are definitely, you know, um, getting up to speed with this. And and so when you have a newborn, you know, I know for myself, I, I found like my conversations were all about poop. When I would talk to my husband, did the baby poop? How much mm -hmm. did she poop? What color was the poop? But research shows there's, there's so much more to poop and the gut microbiome during infancy. And so we, like we said, we hear about gut health and the gut microbiome, but but and I know we're going to get into more detail about this later on in our conversation, but let's set the stage. Why should parents care about this? Yeah, that's so funny. I do agree. All of a sudden you enter a point of your life where you are constantly talking about poop when you have a baby <laughs> and you're and you're thinking, I never would have used that word until I had a baby. And now that's all I talk about. But you're right. I think um, from very basic mechanics of metabolism, whatever goes in has got to come out, whatever your body doesn't use. And so it's a really great indicator of what, if baby is consuming food, be whether it be breast milk or, or formula or solid food, then you can kind of see what's, what's happening as, as things come out the other end. So it's a really visual uh, way to kind of assess how baby is, how much they're eating, how much they're um, digesting, that kind of thing. But there's so much more information in poop than we, I think we ever appreciated before. And that a, a lot of that has to do with the microbes, like we've been talking about, the, the type of bacteria that are in baby's gut. So I feel like I should probably take a step back and just say that when babies are born, they're born with essentially what we think of as a sterile gut. They don't have a microbiome yet per se. They don't have a collection of uh, bacteria and other microorganisms that are living in their large intestine and doing a tremendous amount of work. So, um, so what happens is as baby is emerging through the birth canal, uh, they are being starting to be exposed to mom's microbes. And there's a really amazing moment, which has to do with poop, where when moms are delivering vaginally, a lot of times they will past stool. They will poop on the delivery table. None of us want to believe that's true. And all of us want that to, to like go away from our, our thoughts of what it looks like when we push a baby out. But that is actually biologically designed uh, so that mo some of mom's gut microbes 
come in contact with baby. And so it's what we call a, a, a fecal oral transfer of mom's gut microbes, which are great and, and often very important uh, for baby's microbiome. And it really is kind of like the first opportunity to start seeding baby's microbiome with some of mom's good gut microbes. Well, all of that is great, but think of how many times that doesn't actually happen. Either baby is born by C-section because it's a, it's a life-saving technique that we actually need to have and need to use at times, but there are consequences to C-section delivery. If you can just imagine, baby is not going through the birth canal. They're not being exposed to mom's microbes, gut microbes, uh, and instead their first microbes in their gut are going to be what's on the surfaces of the hospital, what's on the clothes or the skin of people who are holding them, which are very different types of bacteria than what mom would have passed along through her, her, from her gut microbiome to baby during that fecal oral transfer. And we now know that C-section babies and vaginally delivered babies have very different health trajectories. And we believe that that's largely based on the type of microbes they get from day one of life. Another opportunity for us to disrupt this great transfer from mom to baby is if a mom tests positive for something called group B strep, all of us, when we're pregnant, we are tested for group B strep very close to our delivery date. If we test positive for GBS, we are then usually given a round of antibiotics right before we deliver our baby. Well, that's going to wipe out group B strep, which is important. It's also going to wipe out any of mom's good gut microbes that she wants to pass on to baby. So if we think about even if a baby is vaginally delivered, mom's good gut microbes, good gut bacteria may be at really low levels based on the antibiotics she just received. So now we're seeing that the healthy, protective, good gut microbes that mom needs to pass on to baby to start their microbiome, specifically a bacteria called Bifidobacterium infantis or B. infantis is often missing in babies in the U.S. and other industrialized countries where C-section and antibiotic use is really high, really prevalent. So we now see in a, in a recent study that was published, 90% of babies in the U.S. are missing key gut protective microbes, um, specifically B. infantis. Wow. So getting back to the whole pooping on the table scenario and in full transparency, when I had my first daughter, that happened to me and I felt mm -hmm. like embarrassed, right? Of course. Um, <laughs> but I'm so glad I did now that you yes. told me this. Um, but what if that doesn't happen to women? Will, will their babies then miss out on, on those important microbes? Yeah. So th that the kind of details on how much poop needs to be passed? How much, like, how much does baby need to come in contact with it? I, I that honestly is is um, a lot more research needs to happen to figure out the exact um, uh, kind of series of events and how much of the bacteria needs to be passed on to baby. But suffice it to say that moms are able, very able, and very successfully able to pass microbes onto their baby from their gut microbiome if baby is born by vaginal delivery, and if antibiotics are not uh, given to the mom uh, before um, before delivery. So, so the details of that yet are yet to be seen. Um, but what we do know is that up to 30% of babies are born by C-section today, and up to 30% of moms are treated with antibiotics 
for a groupie strep or other reasons. So to, to think about kind of that Venn diagram, the chances that a baby born today is going to not get B. infantis from their mom is really high. And I'll throw in another wrench to this whole system. If mom was born by C-section or if mom had um, a course of antibiotics and over her lifetime, which we now know the average woman in the U.S., has about 20 rounds of antibiotics between the time she's born and the time she delivers her first baby. It's just really, it's all signs point to the likelihood of babies naturally acquiring B. infantis from their moms during labor and delivery is quite low in the U.S. and other industrialized countries where we've done research. And so if a woman is given a round of antibiotics during pregnancy mm-hmm. and then takes probiotics, can that help? Yeah, I imagine that could help. Um, but the the fact that we know what, what we've really focused on is how do we ensure that babies born today, regardless of how they came into the world, regardless of what happened during labor, labor and delivery, how can we make sure that babies have the right bacteria in their gut microbiome from the very beginning? And that's where we've really focused our research at Evolve Biosystems is making sure that we give the probiotic to the baby to specifically start seeding their microbiome. And the clinical data have been incredibly clear that if you give a strain of B. infantis that is that is active and able to utilize the nutrients in, in human milk, if you give that to a baby early in life, in the first week of life, and pair that with breast milk, then that colonizes their the baby's intestine as if they naturally received B. infantis from their mom. It's incredibly effective. Wow. And are there other factors that can affect our gut microbiome before pregnancy that can then affect our baby's gut health? Yeah, a lot of research is being done, not at Evolve, but in other research labs around the world. A lot of research is being done on the microbiome of the mom during pregnancy. And it's amazing to see how much your the mom's microbiome changes, even in the trimesters of pregnancy. It's almost as if the body is changing based on how close mom is getting to delivery and how that can help protect and guide uh, a natural ha- a natural healthy um, delivery for for the baby but a lot of that research is still really early and new and emerging and i think the the whole concept of the microbiome both our gut microbiome our skin microbiome our oral microbiome every colony of or, or, or area on our body that's colonized by microbes, there's so, so much that we are going to learn in the near future on how that actually drives uh, health and disease in our body. Wow, this is fascinating. So we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the role that breastfeeding plays in infant gut health. The holiday season is in full swing, and I bet you're already planning family gatherings, holiday parties, and cookie recipes with your kids. But with everything that has to get done, you don't have hours to spend in the kitchen. That's why I love using my Vitamix. When I received it as a Christmas present a few years ago, I admit I was skeptical because I already had a blender. But the first time I used it, I was hooked. Vitamix is known for making the best smoothies, but it can do so much more. You can use it to make holiday cookies, desserts and cocktails, side dishes, dressings and marinades, even peppermint hot chocolate and eggnog. 
Vitamix has been around for 70 years and all of their blenders are powerful, durable, and built to last and come with a full warranty. To get free shipping off any Vitamix purchase over $50, just go to my website, julierevelant.com slash shop and click on Vitamix. Dr. Shafazada, let's talk about the role that breastfeeding plays in infant gut health. And I had read that about 15% of breast milk is indigestible by babies. That is really surprising to me. Yeah, that honestly, that probably is what caught my attention most when I was starting to understand this space, infant gut microbiome space, because that doesn't make sense at all from a biological or evolutionary perspective that moms would be working so hard to make, to, to make breast milk, which is very metabolically taxing on the mom. They're breaking, they're breaking down their own bodies to make breast milk for their baby. And to have 15% of the nutrients in breast milk not digestible by the baby didn't make sense at all. Until the team at UC Davis found that the reason we have such a high amount of nutrients in breast milk that baby can't use actually is because that is there, that those nutrients are there to feed a specific type of bacteria in baby's gut. And that is B. infantis, bifidobacteria infantis. So if you think about it, human breast milk has everything that a baby needs for growth and development in the first six months of life, but it also has everything that B. infantis needs to grow and develop in baby's gut as well. So this, this portion of human milk that is indigestible by the baby is called human milk oligosaccharides. It's a really long name, so we call them HMOs for short. And HMOs are complex carbohydrates in milk that we as humans do not have the enzymes to break down. But the bacteria, B. infantis, has the enzymes to break down HMOs really efficiently. And what's interesting about that is that no other type of bacteria found in the gut or any other part of our body has all of the enzymes required to break down all of those complex carbohydrates. So it's this amazing, perfect synergy between human breast milk containing everything that baby and B. infantis needs, babies consuming the breast milk and having B. infantis in their intestine, and then both baby and B. infantis get everything they need in terms of their food to grow and thrive and develop. So it's this beautiful kind of trifecta of human breast milk, B. infantis, and baby that creates a protective environment in baby's gut over the first six months of life. And so you mentioned HMOs, and I know that there is one uh, formula company in particular, I'm not sure if there are others now that actually, if I, and you can correct me on this, but add the HMOs into their formula. So can you talk to me about that? And, and is it just as good, if you will, as breast milk? Yeah. Well, the first thing I always say is we believe, and I believe strongly that fed is best. I understand that breast milk has amazing properties that formula does not have, but we have to feed our babies. So at, at Evolve, we, at, we really believe that moms have to feed their babies. So it's not a, there's no judgment uh, in terms of how babies are fed. You just have to do the best you can. However, we know that breast milk contains properties and nutrients and, and uh, bioactive factors that we just can't figure out how to get into formula yet. But formula 
companies are doing their best to try to make formula as close to breast milk as possible. We're not there yet, but we're trying. And so what I appreciate about it is that now the the role of HMOs, the role of these complex carbohydrates in human milk and how important they are to the infant gut and for overall infant health is so clear that formula companies are trying to include HMOs in their formula, uh, their baby formulas. It's not, it doesn't look the same as, as human milk. It's not the full complement of all the different structures. HMOs are actually a collection of about 200 different chemical entities and structures. HMOs that go into formula do not contain all 200. They're, they're, they pick one or two that they can easily get into formula. And they're not at the same concentration. They're at a much lower concentration than what you, than what you would find in human milk. So they are. It's a, it's a wonderful attempt to try to get as close to human milk as possible, but it's not going to elicit the same beneficial effects. And right now we, we still know that babies fed human milk really do establish a, a very different looking uh, gut microbiome and have a different healthier health trajectory um, uh, than, than babies that are receiving formula only. Great. And so what are some of the long-term consequences of a baby who has a lack of B infantis? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that is really the focus of our research right now. So they, we know early on, we know that when babies are missing B infantis, and this is from the clinical studies uh, that have been conducted um, over the last five years or so, there are a number of things we can see very right away, very early on. We can see babies are uh, pooping out or excreting the HMOs in breast milk at very high levels. So instead of if B infantis isn't there to use those HMOs and baby can't digest them, they they are excreted at high levels in the in the baby poop in their diaper. And what happens? It that means that 15% of the nutrients in human milk are being excreted and what we think of as unutilized or wasted. And in in that excretion process, their uh, babies end up having a lot more loose, watery stools. So if we go back to what we were saying early on about diaper rash, when babies don't have B infantis to utilize HMOs in breast milk, and they're having eight to 10 watery stools per day, and the, and, and, and the, the consistency of the, the stools is loose and runny, and there's one aspect that we haven't covered, which is the pH of the stool is vastly different in babies that have B infantis versus babies who don't. Uh, the the difference in that pH and the difference in the consistency and the frequency of stooling really does contribute to diaper rash that can be very difficult to solve. But when babies are given B. infantis and they are able to restore the natural levels of B. infantis in their gut, moms and dads and pediatricians are seeing diaper rash resolve almost within days, if not one week. And it's incredible that it's really tough, hard to treat diaper rash goes away or is reduced so much that they, they within a few days to a week that it's really remarkable. And we're seeing that time and time again. So that's diaper rash, which, you know, is not a long-term health consequence that we're all worried about, but it is result. It it is a visual and acute uh, result that we can see right away that we know that when you get the microbiome, right, it has both immediate beneficial effects. And then we're starting to look at the longer term effects. So some of those longer term effects that we believe are are 
critical to real health outcomes for a lifetime are things like the incidence of food allergies, the incidence of asthma, the incidence of type 1 diabetes, the incidence of um, other uh, kind of auto-inflammatory, autoimmune disorders later in life. And what, what I'm, I'm really excited about and that you have to put the time in and you can't speed up time, but we have three or four, maybe more clinical trials going on around the world right now, looking at what happens when you make sure B. infantis is colonized in babies early on, can we reduce the incidence of those longer term serious health effects down the road for those babies? Wow. What a game changer that could be for healthcare in general, right? Absolutely. And so, you know, I had read this term on this, on your site called newborn gut deficiency. So is, is the lack of B. infantis, is that what that is? Yeah. So we were seeing such an interesting collection of symptoms across the globe in babies that were missing B. infantis in the work we were doing both in the U.S. and also in, in developing countries um, around the world, that babies that did not have B. infantis shared a collection of symptoms that we are now calling newborn gut deficiency. And this includes uh, babies that are excreting high levels of HMOs, babies that have a high fecal pH, so we mentioned that the pH is very different with and without um, B. infantis. Uh, babies that have higher incidence of colic, of higher incidence of diaper rash, higher incidence of fussiness or gassiness. And then we're also looking now at markers of immune development. So we, we just published a paper in Cell recently showing that B. infantis is not just a nice to have. It looks like it is a need to have bacteria in babies for, for proper immune development. And the types of uh, immune markers that show a baby is more likely to have autoimmune or auto-inflammatory uh, disorders later in life, or a baby that has normal immune development and immune function, really start with whether or not baby has B. infantis early on. And so now we're starting to include uh, different uh, levels of markers of inflammation, of gut inflammation, of um, degradation of the intestinal lining that are present when babies are missing B. infantis that we believe are directly linked to the immune development and health trajectory for life. And do we know how common it is? Yeah, so so newborn gut deficiency is a, is a term, like I said, that we're using to uh, talk more about the function of the gut microbiome rather than just presence or absence of one symptom or another. But newborn gut deficiency, if we use that term to include the absence of B. infantis plus these symptoms that we're observing, we are now seeing that 90% of babies in the U.S. are missing B. infantis and have these kind of collection of symptoms. So it's a really high number. Wow. So, and how do you know your baby has it? Is there a test you can do? Yeah. So I would say that although today sending your baby's stool sample in for quantitative evaluation of B. infantis is not really something that's accessible to most moms and dads right now. Right. But if you look at, we, we've created kind of almost like a, an easy quiz on our website to start looking at if you have uh, any one or more of these symptoms, the likelihood that your baby is experiencing newborn gut deficiency is pretty high. And that starts with 
Were you or your baby born by C-section? Yes or no. And remember that it's a generational loss of this bacteria. So even if baby today is born by vaginal delivery, if mom was born by C-section, the answer is yes to that question. Either mom or baby born by C-section. The next question is, does your baby have five or more loose watery stools per day? And remember, we talked about when baby is excreting HMOs at high levels because they don't have B infantis to, to utilize it, that that causes a, a much higher and a much watery stool consistency and frequency in babies than those who have B infantis. And then last is, uh, does your baby experience diaper rash, colic, um, sleeplessness, fussiness? Those are also symptoms of um, of of newborn gut deficiency that moms can kind of qualitatively assess whether or not um, B. infantis would be appropriate to give their baby. Yeah, I have a question about the poop consistency. It's been many years since I've changed a diaper, but I remember with my first daughter, you know, her stools were loose and she'd poop right up her back. And that happened in the early days. Is that normal or could that be a sign of, of newborn gut deficiency? Yeah, I'm 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 exactly where you are. When my babies were born, I was told that just be prepared for blowouts up the back. It's just the way <laughs> breastfed babies are. They they poop all the time and it's loose watery stools and it's just a rite of passage. And that is so interesting because we have now seen both in the literature, old, the the older historic literature of descriptions of breastfed baby stools were around two to three soft, well-formed stools per day. Well, in our clinical studies that we've done recently, we can see a very distinct difference between babies that have B. infantis in their gut microbiome and babies that don't. Babies that have B. infantis in their gut microbiome, on average, have two to three soft, well-formed stools per day. And these are newborns. These are in the first month of life. Babies that were missing B. infantis had an average of five or more watery stools per day. And as soon as babies that were in that category of missing B. infantis with loose watery stools were given B. infantis, given an activated form of B. infantis called EVC001, they within days started looking like the babies that had B. infantis. So babies that were having two to three soft well-formed stools per day. So it's really quite amazing how quickly the gut microbiome can change and how quickly it can normalize the the frequency and consistency of stools in babies. And and so if a baby isn't given the probiotic and years go by, is B. infantis still necessary as the baby gets older? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, And I think it's one that's going to take a long time for us to really dissect and understand because the like I was saying before, studies, these types of clinical studies where you give something to a group of, of babies and then wait to see what they look like at age 30 versus those that did not get it and look at age 30, that, you know, that's, that's tricky because you can't speed up time. However, what we do know is that B. infantis has historically been part of the infant gut microbiome for millennia. And we know this because when we look at other countries that have be, that that are um, not industrialized the way that the U.S. Uh, and other countries are, Western countries are, babies in the first six months of life have a predominantly B. infantis colonized in, uh, microbiome. 
they have very high levels of bee infantis. And this is in places like Bangladesh, and this is in places like Malawi and Kenya, where we can see that babies that were born vaginally and didn't get exposed to antibiotics and didn't uh, weren't born by C-section have have a, a, a very high level of bee infantis. Babies that are in more industrialized countries have very low levels. However, a recent study came out looking at an old order Mennonite uh, colony in, in upstate New York that um, those that live a very, um, a lifestyle more similar to uh, less industrialized countries, those babies are full of B infantis in their intestine. So really it is our, uh, our, our interventions, our medical and dietary interventions that we have implemented in the U.S. and other related, other similar countries that have disrupted this natural colonization of B. infantis in the infant gut. So if we don't intervene with restoring B. infantis to our babies, there are long-term unintended consequences of the things that we consider part of modern uh, medical uh, practice now. But I think one other thing that we really should talk about is the, the benefit of B. infantis has become quite clear and now when a, if a mom decides that she wants to go or a dad or, or a caregiver decide that they want to go get a probiotic to give their baby, then all of a sudden they are presented with a, a, an exponential number of, of products that now claim to have B. infantis. This is where it gets really tricky because pro, the probiotic world can be very hard to navigate, I think from a consumer or a clinician's perspective, because it's in a category where you don't have to have scientific or clinical studies behind a probiotic to put it on the market. You don't have to have those peer-reviewed research studies published for um, the public to have access to in order to put claims and and things on your, your packaging. And I think that's a real disservice to the community and to public health because when we when we've gone as far as we can to educate parents and clinicians about the science that's emerging around the microbiome and then the studies aren't there to back up the products that are then available to to parents i think that's that can be really confusing and it can also be detrimental so what i would tell parents is there there is the term probiotic is so general that it's really like saying food or medicine. You, If someone said, is, it, is food good for you? You would say, well, it really depends on what food you're talking about. And it really depends on how much, and it really depends on where it's grown and how it's processed and how it's, it's, it's prepared and delivered. If someone were to say, is medicine a good idea or a bad idea? It really depends on what drug and what form and for what purpose. So to say are probiotics good for babies is so nebulous and generic that it really doesn't tell the parent what to do or how to approach uh, kind of the the, um, choices they're going to make for their baby. So our advice is make sure that whatever product you're looking at on the shelf, there's there's huge numbers of probiotic choices when you go to to CVS or, or Whole Foods, make sure that the strain of the the infantis that you're that is labeled on the product you're considering. And the strain is usually a number after the term B infantis. 
For instance, the strain that we use in our clinical studies is B. infantis, EVC001. And other strains of B. infantis that are in other products are also should be listed. If it's not listed, I would say do not purchase the product. When you see the strain number there on whatever product you're looking at, that is your key to being able to look to see if there are any clinical studies done with that particular strain of bacteria. And I think that's the key do, to put the time and put the effort into looking to see if there are any peer-reviewed studies that you can find on the internet, you can Google them, that, that are using that particular strain of bacteria in clinical studies to show that there is a benefit, that it is safe, that it's been rigorously tested for both safety and efficacy um, and, and what benefits are being shown. So, so that's, that's a challenge that I don't envy any parent trying to navigate these waters, but it's important to do that work. Yeah, that is all really helpful because supplements in the U.S. aren't regulated, right? right. So yeah, that is really mm-hmm. important. So we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what moms can do to promote gut health in utero and during infancy and, and, and kind of give us a positive light on, on all of this. If you have picky eaters, you're not alone. And as a mom of two, I totally get it. But through the years as both a journalist and a mom, I've discovered the secrets to raising kids who love their veggies and will eat just about anything. And I want to share what I've learned with you in my free ebook, 15 Secrets to Raise Healthy Eaters and Put an End to Picky Eating. This book is filled with evidence-based real-life strategies that will help you raise healthy eaters without sneaking foods, bribing, negotiating, or making food into art projects. To get the book, just go to julierevelant.com and click on freebies. Okay, let's talk about what moms can do when they're pregnant and when they have newborns to promote good infant gut health. Yeah, so I, I really believe that there's so much that we can do during pregnancy to um, increase our chances of having a healthy labor and delivery. And that is, it includes both um, taking care of your body, being able to move and exercise as much as, as it's safe for you as a, as a pregnant woman, the, the nutrition that you give your body, which then directly feeds your baby. All of these are, are really important aspects of a healthy pregnancy. And I would say that almost all of the moms that I know, we all had what I would call a birth plan going into labor and delivery and how how you want the process to go. And almost every mom I know also, their, their birth plan didn't exactly go according to what they had in mind. And so as much as we would love to say, I would love to have a vaginal delivery I would love to breastfeed my baby and I would love to avoid having a stay in the NICU and I would love to avoid antibiotic exposure uh, from from myself or my baby. It's just really difficult to know exactly how things are going to go. And the real goal is you got to have mom and baby safe at the end of the day and you have to have everyone going home together as soon as possible. So that's the goal. How you get there, everybody has a different journey. What we do know is no matter how it turns out, there is the opportunity when you get home to restore or undo those unintended consequences of C-section delivery, of antibiotic exposure, uh, of anything that might have happened uh, that that could end up having your baby have a stay in the NICU. 
Um, and that is, and this is where I'll introduce the actual uh, product that I would recommend parents researching. And really, I, I invite you all to do your research. And by that, I mean, read about the clinical studies and the different uh, groups that are utilizing the strain of B. infantis, EVC001, to do the rigorous clinical research. And that the, the product is called Evivo. Evivo is a once-a-day uh, formulation of B. infantis, EVC001, that comes in individual little packets that you keep in the freezer because Evivo is, has a live bacteria. That's what you want. You do not want something that has been sitting at room temperature for a year or more, which a lot of the products that we see on the shelves, uh, it, that's exactly what's happening to them. Evivo is a, a live bacteria that stays in the freezer or the refrigerator. And each day, mom or dad can take out one packet and it's a powder, small amount of powder that you mix with breast milk or water or whatever you're feeding your baby in a very small volume. And you can either use your finger or a dropper to get it into baby's mouth. And this is the form and the way of feeding baby that has been replicated now in many clinical studies to show that it's a very effective, very safe way to get B. infantis colonized in your baby's gut. And, if, and, and this is something that moms and dads can do uh, from one month or more. And really, it's, uh, it's the, the goal is to get B. infantis established, colonized, and working in your baby's gut uh, from the time you bring baby home all the way through till when they are done consuming breast milk. A lot of parents continue on beyond the six-month mark because a lot of moms are continuing to breastfeed beyond six months, all the way uh, to a year or further. And we're also starting to see benefits even in formula-fed babies as well. Because even though we talked about the fact that there aren't the same number and volume and concentration and mix of HMOs in, in formula, there are other nutrients in formula that B. infantis can use as fuel. We don't see the same level of colonization. We don't see the same level of benefit, but any B. infantis colonization is better than none we are seeing. And that is across the board in babies all over the world. If we can get some B. infantis into baby early on, then we are seeing some, at least some, if not uh, big benefits to baby early and long-term. Great. And are there things that you recommend that moms do uh, either before pregnancy, during pregnancy, such as uh, eating fermented foods for probiotics or watching their chemicals, uh, the chemical use like in personal care products? Yeah, I think that there are wonderful guidelines for uh, pregnant women and women, even women considering conceiving. I think it starts even before conception. We know that the first 1,000 days of baby's life that starts at the moment of conception all the way to their second uh, birthday, there are factors, both environmental and internal factors that that really shape the way that baby's life is going to uh, progress. Um, but I would say that that each woman needs to think about um, their their goals for their bodies and their goals for their babies too. And then consult with their doctors about the best way to reach those goals. And I encourage moms in their pregnancy, during pregnancy, not, not to wait till uh, we have a birth plan in place, but to talk about gut health, both for themselves and for their baby with their OB, and then with their pediatrician once baby is born. Because I think that this is a conversation that moms need to be having 
with their healthcare providers and that healthcare providers need to be educating themselves as well on how to have that informed conversation with their, their, their patients. And so when I was preparing for this interview, I was doing some research and I came across this term vaginal seeding. What is that? It's kind of been one of those hot topics that has been floating around. And I know a lot of nurses that I speak to, uh, labor and delivery nurses are like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do with women that come in with these tampons that have been soaked uh, in their vaginal fluids and they want me to, to utilize it when baby is born. So it's definitely something that's, that's um, on top of mind for both moms and clinicians as if a baby does need to have C-section. And I'm really glad that you brought it up because I feel like it can be very confusing. Vaginal seeding, the concept is if baby misses the opportunity of going through the vaginal canal, because they're born by C-section, would it make sense to collect vaginal fluid and get it onto baby's skin and in their mouth as if they were replicating going through the vaginal canal? And what I want moms and dads and and everyone listening to this uh, interview to, to understand is the gut microbiome is very different from the vaginal microbiome. And vaginal seeding does a really good job of getting vaginal microbes onto baby, it doesn't do um, the trick of getting uh, gut microbes and, into baby. Gut, it's, it's separated both physically in mom's body and uh, doing vaginal seeding doesn't solve the problem of transferring gut microbes to baby. Also, uh, the American, uh, oh gosh, I need to go back. I'm just going to say, also ACOG, the governing body for obstetrics and gynecology, it recommends not doing vaginal seeding because of the potential transfer of, of harmful viruses or pathogens that could be in the vaginal canal that, um, that wouldn't be transferred to baby if they had C-section uh, delivery. So vaginal seeding is not recommended and it doesn't solve the gut microbiome issue that we've been talking about today. Well, Dr. Shafazada, tell me where listeners can go to learn more about you and your work and Avivo. I would encourage all listeners to check out the website for Evivo. It's evivo.com, E-V-I-V-O.com. And when you get to the homepage of Evivo, you will see you have two options. You can either go to the parents section or to the professional section for clinicians, for pediatricians and other healthcare professionals. And depending on which part of the site that you go to, there are resources that both parents and clinicians can use to learn more about the science and the publications that have um, come out on the clinical research using uh, the bacteria in Avivo. Also, there's there's documents and there's uh, resources there for parents to print out to go take to their pediatric uh, appointment to start the conversation with their pediatrician about questions they may have about how to find out whether this is right for their baby or not. And same with clinicians, how to speak to your patients about infant gut health. And so I really feel like our goal at Avivo and at Evolve Biosystems is to educate parents and caregivers on the science of the infant gut microbiome and how to navigate the sea of both good information and misinformation about uh, probiotics and about the gut microbiome and what what you should expect and what you should look for. So there's a wealth of resources there on avivo.com and I would encourage everyone to check it out. Great. Well, we'll link to all of that in the show notes. Dr. Shafazada, thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. 
That interview with Dr. Tracy Shafazada was one of my all-time favorites, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you found this episode helpful, I'd love it if you could go into Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating so we can reach more people. I'm Julie Revelant, and thank you for listening to Food Issues. You can connect with me on julierevelant.com and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.